0: Without giving specifics, President Biden says he's decided on a response to the killing of three U.S. soldiers in Jordan. It's Wednesday, January 31st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Qatar's Prime Minister is in Washington, D.C. for talks aimed at finalizing a deal to free hostages and stop fighting in Gaza.
1: Our aim is to finish this as soon as possible and to bring the hostages back, but to put a closure for the war as well.
0: Also this hour, students are out of school for a ninth day in Newton as the teacher strike there continues. Plus a local artist uses an old jukebox to play stories from Cambridge's past. I wanted people to come into this space and be curious and be just wrapped in community. In sports, Celtics win, mostly cloudy and 30s today. It's 7 one Now the news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The House Homeland Security Committee has voted on party lines to approve two articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The Republican-led panel alleges he has allowed hundreds of thousands of migrants to enter the U.S. illegally. Georgia Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene.
3: The facts are the facts. Secretary Mayorkas is breaking the law
2: but democrats say republicans are making up the facts new york democratic congressman dan goldman says republicans won't admit that the biden administration is stopping more migrants at the border than the trump administration did
4: more arrests have been made more deportations and removals have been executed than under any previous administration including the most recent one.
2: The impeachment articles now go to the full House. If Mayorkas is impeached, the democratically-led Senate is unlikely to remove him from office. This effort also comes as former President Donald Trump is telling Republican lawmakers to block immigration reform legislation. Israel has announced it is flooding Hamas tunnels in Gaza in an attempt to destroy the underground network. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports from Tel Aviv, Hamas militants are still operating inside parts of the vast
5: tunnel system and are likely holding hostages there. Israel's military now says it's pumping water from the Mediterranean Sea off Gaza's coast to flood the tunnels. Despite weeks of speculation and media reports, Israel had previously declined to comment. The military says the effort is underway, though it didn't provide details. Hamas has said it built 300 miles of tunnels. Israeli troops control much of northern Gaza and have uncovered hundreds of tunnel entrances in that area. Daily fighting is ongoing in southern Gaza. Hamas militants there are still operating from tunnels and are believed to hold at least some Israeli hostages underground. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The U.S.
2: Federal Reserve wraps up a two-day policy meeting this afternoon. NPR's Scott Horsley reports, investors are hoping for some guidance about when the Fed might start cutting
6: interest rates. Nobody thinks the Fed's going to cut interest rates today, but some investors do believe a rate cut is possible the next time Fed policymakers get together in March. Inflation has cooled considerably in recent months. In fact, the progress has come faster than Fed officials were expecting. That could open the door for rate cuts fairly soon. But Fed policymakers are wary about letting their guard down prematurely. The economy is still growing, so is consumer spending, and the unemployment rate remains very low, all of which could lead to a rekindling of inflation. That's why Fed policymakers are proceeding carefully as they try to bring prices under control without slowing the economy any more than necessary. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington.
0: You're listening
6: to NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBWAR in Boston. Classes at Newton Public Schools are canceled for a ninth day today. Teachers are striking as they negotiate a new contract with the city. The strike is now one of the longest in Massachusetts since the 1990s. Both sides say they are making progress, but School Committee Chair Chris Breske was critical of the union's most recent response during contract negotiations yesterday.
7: It makes me question whether the union really wants a deal. It makes me question what the strike is really about. Is it about Newton's kids, and teachers? Is it about money? Or is it about some other bigger agenda, one where our kids
8: are being used as pawns?
0: Teachers say they remain at odds with the city over funding for teachers' aides and student mental health support. A new report recommends boosting behavioral health training and services for veterans and expanding peer services for active duty service members and vets. WBOR's Fausto Menard reports the goal is to reduce the number of veteran suicides in the state.
9: Suicide rates are higher for service members, veterans, and their families compared to the general population. The report found one in nine people who died by suicide in Massachusetts in 2020 were current or former military personnel. And Massachusetts Veterans Services Secretary John Santiago says some veterans are especially vulnerable.
10: Of those who commit suicide, about two-thirds have mental health illnesses, about a third have substance use issues, but about 50 percent of those deaths are with firearms.
9: However, the report found when a veteran has proper social support and access to mental and physical health care, that vulnerability decreases. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard.
0: If you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. The state of Maine plans to help cover medical costs for survivors of the October shooting in Lewiston. Maine Governor Janet Mills announced a $5 million fund to assist people injured in the deadly shooting as part of her State of the State address yesterday. Mills also announced plans to strengthen state gun control laws. 18 people were killed and 13 people were injured in the Lewiston shooting. Tobacco retailers will testify today against a proposed measure in Malden that would ban the sale of nicotine products to some young people. The move would prohibit the sale of tobacco products to anyone born after January 1, 2004. A similar so-called nicotine-free generation measure has been passed in Brookline, those against the bill say it supports illegal sales of the products. They also say it's
11: not effective in preventing underage nicotine use. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting Stand Up If You're Here Tonight, a man seeking audience, a one man, one audience show, 264 Huntington Ave, now through March 23rd. The Seas won again last night, their
0: second victory in a two-night homestand beating the Indiana Pacers 129-124. to Meanwhile, the Bruins and Boston professional women's hockey team are off for the All-Star break. Events start tomorrow. Mostly cloudy today. Highs will be in the mid-30s. Skies stay mostly cloudy tonight. Temperatures will fall to lows around 30. Tomorrow, cloudy with highs in the low 40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
4: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from
12: NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
13: And I'm Leila Fadil. Israel's hope for a return of hostages and Palestinian hopes for an end to the Israeli bombardments lie in the small Gulf nation of Qatar. In Tel Aviv, against a backdrop of images of more than 100 hostages in captivity since the Hamas attack, one Israeli, Yoav Gabay, poses a question.
14: What pressure levers does Qatar apply in Hamas so that it accepts a deal that will bring the hostages back?
13: In Rafah, Ahmed Abu Taha says Palestinians in Gaza have a different wish. He's saying he wants to go back home. We've been dragged in the streets, rain, cold, disease, there is nothing left. With those voices in mind, I sat down with Qatar's prime minister, Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdurrahman bin Jassim Samathani met me at his residence in Washington, D.C. after announcing a framework for a deal between Israel and Hamas. I asked if an agreement is truly possible when Israel wants a pause in the war and Hamas wants a full ceasefire and withdrawal of Israeli troops.
1: We cannot predict that is it going to have a breakthrough and will move forward very fast or how fast it will go, it will all depend on both parties our aim is to finish this as soon as possible and to bring the hostages back but to put a closure for the war as well
13: you don't see this in days or in the next week uh, some well, type of ceasefire it, and return of hostages sometimes
1: the negotiations can surprise us and can finish yeah. in days and but some other times also it's, you know uh, we get stuck into details and uh, it all depends on how will be the how, how the atmosphere will be in the two sides
13: we're speaking at a time of extremely heightened tensions after a drone strike that killed three US servicemen, wounded many others. How is that impacting negotiations? And what are your concerns for the region as the US mulls how to respond to that drone attack?
1: First of all, uh, I'd like to express my condolences for uh, the loss of of, uh, the US soldiers and for their families. Look, the situation in the region is is just stirring up and we've seen the provocation happening every day and building up. We were warning that the situation will be exploited by others and might lead us to uh, a wider regional war. and that's what we've been preventing talking to everyone in order to de-escalate and to contain the situation. Is it impacting the negotiation directly? Um, It's not. We are hoping that everything gets contained as soon as possible. We understand uh, the loss and, of course, uh, the U.S. has the right to decide on the way to retaliate. Just let's hope that uh, we have a cooler heads ahead of us and doesn't get out of control.
13: For a lot of Americans, they don't understand Qatar's support for Hamas. If you could talk about why Qatar has been the home for Hamas officials and has had the support of Qatar.
1: Well, Qatar actually uh, support peace, support the Palestinian people to live in dignity. We don't support Hamas or any political factions over there. In fact, Qatar support that goes to the Palestinians. Fifty-five percent of that support went to the West Bank, and forty-five percent went to Gaza, and it went directly to the people. It has nothing to do with any political party over there. A Hamas office in Doha, when it's established, was happening in coordination with the U.S. and it was for a purpose, and this presence has served this purpose throughout the years. So it's uh, it's part of our role as mediator. Unfortunately, uh, uh, this has been misused against us uh, in many ways. They try to play the blame game against Qatar it will discourage any other country from stepping up and playing a role in, in restoring peace and stability in our region. His Highness the Amir has been repeatedly uh, saying to us, just ignore the noise and focus on your objective. If we are saving lives, that will be enough for us.
13: On that note, Israel's far right wing... Finance Minister Bazalil Smotric said, Qatar encourages terrorism, finances terrorism, pushes terror, and is playing a double game. Leaked audio from Israel's Prime Minister and Benjamin Netanyahu called Qatar problematic and said that your country is failing to use the leverage you have over Hamas since Qatar houses and funds them, according to this leak. If you could respond to these remarks, including from a minister that's seen as quite extreme.
1: I won't bother in commenting on uh, irresponsible remarks that, uh, as you have just uh, mentioned, but the premise of funding Hamas is is totally rejected and it's been clear from day one. The way we are funding Gaza, it was happening under his watch and uh, under his government watch, other governments watch, and it's a very legitimate, transparent process that goes directly to the people and it's verified by the UN. I believe that all the people who knows and who understand the process, they know that these are lies and they are just trying to mislead the public opinion.
13: I want to ask about Israel's stated goal of this war and what the US echoes to eradicate Hamas. In your view, is that possible?
1: well it, it it eradicating a group is does not have a definition a definition is killing we see we have seen the result of the war right now more than twenty five thousand being killed two third of them are children and uh, and women is that part of eradicating Hamas if you want to replace an idea, you have to present a better idea. The better idea is prospects for the Palestinians is a political horizon. And that's what all of us, we are seeking.
13: Should Hamas have a role in future Palestinian governance?
1: This is not for us to decide. It's, uh, it's the Palestinian people's decision. And I think they are, they are capable to decide on, on their fate, on their future. We are supporting the Palestinians. And we would like to see a political prospects for them to have their statehood.
13: You're in the U.S. this week, speaking to U.S. officials. You've been speaking to U.S. officials throughout this negotiation process. What is Qatar's main message to the U.S. as you describe a region, as you put it, that's boiling over?
1: Well, we need to focus on ending this war. We need to focus on overcoming the obstacles on the hostages deal. And how to contain the situation in the region and how to ensure that there are better prospects for the Palestinians in order not to have such a conflict in the future.
13: If this doesn't end soon, what are the risks for a full regional war that drags the U.S., Qatar and others into it?
1: Well, it will always remain a risk as long as this conflict is ongoing. I don't think that the situation is tolerable anymore. Uh, We've seen the humanitarian suffering in Gaza is something that we didn't witness in any modern war. Gaza is the only place where the people, they have no safe place to flee to. It's horrifying, it's heartbreaking. I think that uh, we should all unite behind stopping this war, saving those lives, Saving those children and those women from being killed and being chased and bombed by airstrikes, by tanks, by by everything.
13: Prime Minister, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. The Prime Minister of Qatar, Mohammed bin Abdurrahman bin Jassim For more of our in-depth and varied coverage of this war, go to npr.org slash Mideast Updates.
12: The American Museum of Natural History, a giant museum in New York City, has closed some of its areas featuring Native American artifacts. Many museums have done this to comply with new federal rules intended to speed the return of remains and sacred items under the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Sean Decatur is the museum's president in New York City, and I started by asking why a museum of
15: natural history has artifacts relating to people. If you think of the the larger mission of, of this museum and natural history museums in general, truly really to to tell the the broader story, the history of uh the planet, um, which includes, of course, people. I think it's also important to recognize that natural history museums uh also came from uh a particular point in history uh where the 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 narratives being presented, the work and scholarship being done in museums like this, paradigm that reinforced racial hierarchies.
12: If it can be done in uh, an intellectually honest way and in a respectful way, is it at least in the abstract a good idea that you would continue to display? artifacts from Native cultures uh, and and the history of Native cultures?
15: We do have, for example, spaces in the museum that have been updated. Uh, You know, the museum's curators and exhibition staff uh, worked in close collaboration with uh, curators uh, from Indigenous groups, uh, from the Indigenous nations of those areas, Uh, and that included uh, examination of which objects should stay in the museum and which objects should be returned uh, to the to the tribal nations, uh, it included uh, close collaboration on what should be displayed and how they should be displayed and how the stories should be presented and to me, actually perhaps most importantly, uh, it includes uh, a connection between the the current uh, thriving cultures there and the story of resilience of the indigenous cultures of the Pacific Northwest and the historic artifacts, uh, emphasizing that uh, these are still Uh, living cultures.
12: I could imagine mixed feelings on your part about having to take things off display and deny them to people and remove some of your exhibits. Do you have any such mixed
15: feelings? From my view uh, this is actually a reflection of the fact that museums are not these things that are fixed forever in time. Our mission, in fact, is to discover, interpret, and disseminate uh, knowledge and interpretations of knowledge change over time. And we're at a point, very rightly so, I think, where the frameworks in which we discuss and talk about Indigenous peoples uh, have shifted, uh, that we no longer find it uh, acceptable to talk about or create these narratives without the input and consultation and collaboration of the communities in which we are presenting. And so it feels absolutely appropriate for us to make the changes to the museum that move us towards that type of collaborative presentation on these cultures as opposed to a one-sided presentation.
12: Sean Decatur of the American Museum of Natural History, thanks so much. Thank you. This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with 90.9 WBWAR. We're following news this morning that Iran is threatening to, quote, decisively respond to any U.S. strikes by President Biden in retaliation for the killing of three U.S. soldiers in Jordan. Also, a U.S. House panel has voted along party lines to approve impeachment charges against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, how the climate crisis has changed the stakes for forecasters attempting to make predictions in an era when the weather is tough to anticipate. It's 7.20.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ZTech Associates, providing on-site and remote IT support, cybersecurity, and compliance for Boston area biotechs, financial firms, and more. ZTechnet.com.
16: Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR Crossword Puzzle each day.
9: Five letters, digital trash.
17: Two down, south of Ecuador.
16: Play anytime at WBUR.org slash fun.
17: Five across, biggest toy maker. 4 down rock concert pit
16: Play the WBUR crossword free every day at wbur.org/fun
0: Ahead at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, the federal government has jurisdiction over immigration matters, but in Eagle Pass, Texas, it's National Guardsmen and state troopers who've taken over. States' rights and the standoff at the U.S.-Mexico border on the WBUR app. Keep listening. Highs in the mid-30s today under mostly cloudy skies. Still overcast tonight as it falls to around 30. Cloudy again tomorrow. Highs will be in the low 40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston.
18: Support for NPR comes from the station, and from BritBox with Archie, based on the true story of Hollywood icon Cary Grant, a new original drama starring Jason Isaacs. Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. From the Kresge Foundation, established 100 years ago, the Kresge Foundation works to expand equity and opportunity in cities across America. A century of impact, a future of opportunity. More at kresge.org. From Fisher Investments, Fisher's dedicated team of specialists provide resources on investing, retirement income, estate planning, and more. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
12: It's Morning Edition
19: from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
18: I'm Leila Fadel.
19: And i Amy Martinez. There's a small theater in Los Angeles that has left a big imprint on American pop culture. It's called The Groundlings and this year it celebrates 50 years of improv and sketch comedy. Now maybe that name doesn't ring a bell but if you've watched any tv or movies in the past few decades you've more than likely seen and probably laughed at a groundling.
20: I'm trying to
21: Smelly cat, smelly cat, what are they feeding you? Hey, what is it that you said back
22: when I couldn't fit into my white spandex pantsuit for my wedding?
20: People wouldn't lie about my tight pants. I got my tight pants. I got my tight pants on.
7: I'm very important. Uh, I have many leather-bound books.
19: Paul Rubens, Lisa Kudrow, Jennifer Coolidge, Jimmy Fallon, and Will Ferrell are just some of the hundreds of actors who have honed their skills at the Groundlings. That theater on Melrose Avenue is a comedy mecca. But here's the thing. You can't just show up, say some funny things off the cuff, and become a Groundling. First, you've got to pass several improv and comedy writing classes at the Groundlings School. Then, you have to get voted into the main company. Legendary Saturday Night Live comedian Phil Hartman had to wait more than a year after his audition to start performing in shows. Phyllis Katz is one of the founders of the theater and the school.
23: It's pretty competitive. It's a very long process. So for some people, it feels like a five-year audition. So it can be crushing if you don't get in. I wish it didn't have to be that way because it's not a measure of... Who's the most talented? It's like a microcosm of the rest of show business. And for every person in the Groundlings who became a big celebrity, there were 50 more who came through the doors who were very exciting. And it, it doesn't mean they weren't talented.
19: Was, was there anyone you ever saw walk through the doors and take part of the program there that you thought, wow, they're gonna just be amazing and you turned out to be right on them?
23: Oh, over and over again. And some of them, they're, they're still amazing. I had Lisa Kudrow in an intermediate class and I, I saw that from the first day. Paul Rubens' audition. You see a light go on sometimes in somebody in a class or in a show. And to me, that's the, the point of it all. Suddenly you've done something you've never done before and it's brilliant. And I've seen it in people where you, where you didn't see anything. For ten classes, in the eleventh class, this thing, come, this light goes on. It doesn't turn off again.
19: Katz was initially drawn to the group because first they were really funny and had more women than other improv troupes.
23: And they weren't just playing the girlfriend or the mom. They were they were doing all the crazy things that I think some of us did when we were improvising. But I had never seen a a troupe do that, pay that kind of attention.
19: She joined the Groundlings before they even had a theater.
23: Some of the places we played were so small. uh, There were more of us on stage than people in the audience. We worked at one place, the White House Theater on Pico, that was a swamp. There were mushrooms growing on the carpet,
19: I recently visited the Groundlinks Theater, no mushrooms on the carpet as far as I could see, and I spoke to several members of the main company about why the place has had such a big influence on comedy culture. Alex Bonifer points to the group's star-studded history.
24: I teach here some mornings, and I'm usually the first person in the building. And so when I'm turning on the lights, I do like to come and sit right here and just kind of feel the the energy and the spirit and and all of the laughs that this place has produced. And I do feel like I'm not into crystals or anything like that, but I do feel like it charges me up in a way like to remind myself that Pee Wee Herman was created right there, like five feet from us. And Phil Hartman used to, you know, got discovered right here, five feet from us. I'd like to kind of just be in that energy and that spirit.
19: And that energy can be grueling. Groundlings alum, Kevin Kirkpatrick, says the school's training regimen is like comedy military service where the main weapon is finding characters.
25: It brings in a certain kind of awesome weirdo that wants to play weird people and who isn't here just because, well, I'm cute and funny, but who's here because like, I want to disappear into a very weird character. To do that well takes a huge amount of talent.
19: The relentless rehearsal and performance schedule can be exhausting, but Michael Churvin says it actually helps. You bomb so much and your best teacher is your last bomb. I've never learned so much uh, as when I failed miserably on the stage. Because you learn, firstly, to just let it go, which I think is a key ingredient. And secondly, it forces you to think, okay, what what was missing in that sketch? And the training doesn't just help the performers in their acting careers. For some, it's had some offstage benefits. Emily Pendergast played Jonah Ryan's wife Beth in the hit HBO series Veep.
3: One of the best things it's taught me, improv and Groundlings, is now I listen to understand versus listening to respond. And so I think that's like a really great life lesson.
19: Listening to understand. That's a key component of the acceptance principle. Yes, and which is one of the foundations of improv. Groundling Jay Renshaw says that phrase also holds a lesson for society. I think for sure we don't say yes and enough. I mean, there's a lot of no but I think in the United States. Definitely. Um, I think we could all stand to say yes and a little bit more because even if you feel like you have something to add that's more important, you can still agree with what someone has said and try and build upon that. The divisiveness of our nation's discourse is only one of the things that have changed over the years. Another is the stuff we find funny. Something that was okay to joke about when the Groundlings started half a century ago might not fly today. But early Groundling Phyllis Katz says the comedy has evolved.
23: I think mainly what has changed is that the times have changed, and comedy is reflective of the times. Even if it's a scene about uh, a couple breaking up, which you could have done in the 1920s, it's going to reflect language of the times. It's going to reflect the current day.
19: And that language of improv comedy is something the groundlings have done really well for 50 years. This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, we'll hear about a local artist's effort to tell stories of Cambridge's past using a jukebox. It's 7.29. Join us next Thursday, February 8th at City Space for a conversation with former NPR host Michelle Norris. She'll be talking about her new book, Our Hidden Conversations. Get tickets at WBWAR.org events.
21: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Hurst. The House Committee on Homeland Security approved articles of impeachment for Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas along party lines early this morning. The two articles charge him with willful and systemic refusal to comply with the law in enforcing border policy and breach of public trust. Republican Congressman Michael Guest says Mayorkas didn't make the most of the funding provided. We actually put more money in the budget than the president requested but democrat dan goldman called claims that mayorkas is weak on border enforcement bogus
4: more arrests have been made more deportations and removals have been executed than under any previous administration including the most recent one. A
21: vote on the full House floor is expected soon. Meanwhile, NPR's Mara Eliasson says President Biden has come to understand just how challenging the politics of immigration are for Democrats.
2: Voters blame him and his party. They consider the border a federal presidential responsibility. It's national security. They want the border under control, and it isn't. But what really shifted things was when the Republican governors of Texas and Florida
21: started busing migrants north to Democratic cities and states, so they've been pressuring the White House, too. NPR's Mara Eliasson reporting. U.S. futures contracts are trading in mixed territory at this hour. Dow futures are up about one-tenth of a percent.
0: This is NPR. This is WBMR in Boston. I'm Rupa chenoy Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is pressing the Biden administration for help supporting newly arrived migrants to the city. She met with officials from the Department of Homeland Security during a visit to Washington, D.C. yesterday. Wu tells the Boston Globe she discussed issues including housing, education, and work authorizations. The state recently announced plans for a new shelter to house migrant families in Roxbury. Meanwhile, the Mayor and Governor Mora Healy will tour a new shelter at the Melnia Cass Recreation Center in Roxbury today. The venue will host up to a hundred families who were previously sleeping at Logan Airport. Velt is a Haitian immigrant who came from Brazil. He le- lives in a shelter apartment near the center with his wife and two children.
26: Yeah, me, he says in
0: Portuguese that the new shelter is good news because many immigrants are sleeping at the airport and it's cold. The state is hosting 7,500 families in shelters. About half of them are immigrants. More than 11,000 students in Newton are out of school again today. Teachers continue their strike as they negotiate a new contract with the city. The walkout is now one of the longest in the state since the 1990s. Teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts, and the union now faces more than a half million dollars in fines. State lawmakers are considering a bill that would require training for hotel staff to identify human trafficking cases. Lisa Goldback Grace is with the anti trafficking nonprofit My Life, My Choice. She says trafficking doesn't start on the streets anymore, it often starts online and goes to hotels.
11: Our young people report being exploited in the highest-rent hotels and the lowest-rent motels, where they are kept isolated, where a steady stream of men come through.
0: The training would include how to identify human trafficking cases and how to help suspected victims. At least eight states already require similar training for hospitality staff. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. It's the all star break in hockey, so there are no games for the Bruins or the Boston professional women's hockey team. But the Celtics took to the garden last night to beat the Indiana Pacers in a close one, 129 124. They play again at home tomorrow against the Los Angeles Lakers. Mostly over. Overcast today, highs will be in the mid-30s, still cloudy tonight, temperatures will be around 30. Cloudy with highs in the low 40s tomorrow, there's a slight chance of rain Thursday night. It's 28 degrees in Boston, you're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this
18: station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR
13: station.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
13: And I'm Leila Faudil. Weather forecasters from around the world are gathering in Baltimore this week for the annual meeting of the American Meteorological Society. Try saying that five You're times just fast. You great.
12: American Meteorological Society.
13: <laughs> All right. They meet at a time when the stakes for forecasters have never been higher. Climate change is bringing extreme heat and more powerful storms, making sure the forecast is right and that the public listens to it can be a matter of life or death. Greg Carbon is attending the conference. He's the chief of forecast operations at the National Weather Service, and he joins me now. Good morning, Greg.
24: Good morning, Leila.
13: So are meteorologists feeling the pressure to improve their forecasts amid these extreme weather events?
24: Well, I think it is a, it can be at times a stressful job, for sure, um, predicting the, the future. Uh, <laughs> but overall, I think uh, meteorology is a, a great good news story for science. Uh, the improvements we've seen in forecasts are remarkable.
13: I mean, the weather, though, is so erratic. I was walking around in a T-shirt in 80-degree weather the other day here in D.C. in January, just after freezing temperatures and snow. With these swings, does it make it harder at
24: all? It, it can. Uh, the pattern can go into regimes that are generally quite predictable, especially during the summertime with heat waves. Those are, those are very predictable events that we can see many days in advance. And once they're locked in, uh, really these day-to-day forecasts don't change very much. Um, however, the danger can increase with extended heat as we saw last summer. Mm-hmm. Um, quick moving systems like we saw in the mid-Atlantic last week with snow followed by uh, unusual warmth can be more difficult to predict. Uh, and actually, even more difficult to adjust to from one swing to the next. But overall, forecasts have improved dramatically in recent years, and the ability to foresee these changes is actually quite good um, in the the meteorology that we use today.
13: Now, you describe a lot of good news there, that really the science is there. But a University of Arizona study last year said that a one-degree difference in a forecast accuracy during a heat wave can be the difference between life and death, and that if you could improve the forecast by 50 percent, then you could save over two thousand lives I mean is that even feasible
24: it is but at the same time what's more important perhaps in these dangerous hazardous weather forecasts, is getting the message out Um, I think the public generally understands there's inherent uncertainty in in forecasting the weather uh, but also that weather forecasters especially local forecasters broadcast meteorologists are some of the most trusted scientists that we have people really do trust the message that they're getting and so it's key that the forecast information be translated by broadcasters and others to the communities that need the information.
13: Is that a challenge getting that information to where it needs to be?
24: It's a huge challenge, and it becomes more of a challenge every day almost as more and more information is available uh, that needs to be poured over by uh, experts and and basically translated in a way that can be understood uh, by various uh, publics. You said various publics.
13: When you think about those who often don't get access to this information, who are they?
24: Well, there's a lot of folks that are living in vulnerable areas um, and there's their language issues, translation issues. Uh, Some of the more vulnerable uh, locations include uh, coastal areas where we see sea level rise causing a problem with uh, increasing storm surge and damage along the coast. We also see, you know, unfortunate levels of poverty in parts of the country that are most susceptible to dangerous storms and climate change, especially heat waves in the south, severe storms in the Midwest. Those are some of the populations that need to get the message early so that they can begin to take some actions and, and build resilience into those communities.
13: Greg Carbon is the Chief of Forecast Operations at the National Weather Service. Thank you. Thank you. We
12: have even more news today about the water system in Jackson, Mississippi. Residents have faced service disruptions, boil water notices, and inaccurate water bills. In fact, the billing system was so messed up that the utility was banned from cutting off service for supposedly unpaid bills. Now the utility says it's made enough improvements to justify shutoffs. Here's Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States Newsroom.
17: If you've ever tried to read your water bill, it can feel like you need to be a lawyer to figure it out or an accountant. Lucky for James Henley, he's both. And after his Facebook post about his water bill in the fall, he can add a new title.
26: It got so many reads that Facebook sent me something that said I could become an influencer if I wanted to.
17: (laughs) That was hilarious. He remembers going nearly two months without safe tap
26: water. Most people in Jackson have never drank Jackson water. You would bathe in it and you would cook with it. But you couldn't really do that anymore either.
17: And beyond the health concerns, there are those bills. Jackson has a history of inaccurate, expensive, and sometimes just missing water bills, which is why shutoffs haven't happened in a long time. People have gotten into the habit of maybe not paying or not getting a bill or not even recognizing they need a bill. That's Ted Hennepin. He was appointed by a district judge about a year ago to fix Jackson's water system. He's been installing new water meters across the city to make bills accurate. And now he says they need to bring back shutoffs to pay for Jackson's underfunded water system.
4: We have to do a whole education campaign to help people understand that water's not free. We're all in this together. Everyone's gotta to do their
17: part. He says rates will be reasonable and affordable, but people have to pay their bills. James Henley isn't so sure.
26: When I heard that they were saying we're gonna start cutting off poor people's water because they haven't paid these extravagant bills that we sent them. I sat down and said, well, that doesn't make any sense because these bills are based on false data.
17: What Henley means by false data is that some customers like him have not been billed for how much water they actually use. Instead, their bills are estimated. That's the case for people who don't have a new water meter yet. Henley's bill was estimated at 160 bucks for a one-story house he owns. But the thing is, Henley doesn't live there. It's his law office.
26: Obviously, you have to go to the restroom. Obviously, you have to wash your hands. I'm not cooking here. I'm not bathing here. I'm not doing anything here that would raise my bill to that extent.
17: He called to get someone out to read his meter, and they came two months later. Henley recorded the moment on his phone.
26: Jackson Water (laughs) finally sent someone out to read my meter. The problem is, my meter hasn't been read in so long, they can't figure out where the meter is. It took
17: two days to find it, and the meter reading was way less than the number on his bill, like off by more than 230,000 gallons. So Henley did what any good accountant would and made a spreadsheet. He crunched the numbers and showed they overcharged him over the years by more than $3,000. Jackson Water disputes Henley's version of what happened, but they did pay him
26: back. And they adjusted my water mill by the $3,208. Gave me a credit.
17: He documented all this on Facebook to show other people how to possibly get their own refunds. The utility says nearly all of its customers now have new meters, and it won't shut off water for anyone still getting estimates. They also say they have payment plans to help customers keep their water on. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Bassahan, Jackson, Mississippi.
26: This
12: is NPR News.
0: Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition. As officials with the Federal Reserve wrap up a meeting today, we'll hear from experts who are looking for clues as to when interest rates may start to go down. Mid-30s and mostly cloudy today. Overcast and low 30s tonight. Cloudy
11: tomorrow with a warm-up
0: to the low 40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston.
11: WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month, new benefits for 2024, bluecrossma.com slash go, and Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at howdoyouseetheworld.com. The Healy administration is awarding more than
0: $9 million for new technology and workforce development grants. The grants are aimed at encouraging the microelectronics and semiconductor industries. The bulk of the money, more than $7 million, will go to MIT to support a project on advanced nanofabrication. The remaining money will boost programs that train workers to help domestic companies in the industry. Two Massachusetts biotech companies plan to merge. Cambridge-based AvroBio says it plans to merge with Watertown-based Tectonic Therapeutic. The companies tell the Boston Business Journal they'll be publicly traded under the name Tectonic Therapeutic. Citrus and salt in the Back Bay is moving. The Mexican-inspired restaurant is moving from Berkeley Street into the old Oak and Rowan space in March. The restaurant's chef tells the Boston Globe the new space has an 80-seat patio and more room. The existing space closes next month. It's 744.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
0: This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. When you think of a jukebox, the first thing that comes to mind is probably music. But a Boston-based artist has created a different kind of jukebox, one that tells stories. WBUR's Solon Kelleher has more on this unique project. They-
4: Alisa Hamilton has a good ear for what belongs in a jukebox. She remembers one upstairs at Charlie's Kitchen in Cambridge.
27: I would always play Pulling Muscles from a Shell by the band Squeeze. And then one day I went in there and they had changed the discs in the jukebox. And I was really upset about
4: it. Hamilton created her own jukebox over the last five years and the project is now complete.
27: You are looking at a 1960 Seaburg jukebox. It's been completely gutted and remade.
4: It still works in the same way. You press a combination of letters and numbers to select a track.
27: J, five.
4: And when you do...
27: It comes to life.
4: The center console lights up like a miniature stage. Inside, colorful wooden sculptures spin like the vinyl records this machine used to play. But visitors won't hear music. Instead, they'll hear stories like this one from Cambridge resident Clyde Lindsay.
26: The uh, counselor for the high school was a man named Frank Frizoli. He was a wonderful guy, knew his business, never wasted time, always had time for you.
4: Lindsay's track tells the story of Frank Frizoli, a Cambridge public school teacher. He held unofficial weekend office hours at the Fantasia restaurant to help high school students from under-resourced schools apply to college.
26: He wasn't supposed to be doing that. It was against the rules for him to do that. Yeah, Frank Fazole is one of the people who is a hero,
4: I think. Visitors can hear Lindsay's and other stories in a purple-cushioned nook at the foundry in Cambridge.
27: It's warm. I wanted people to come into the space and be curious and be just wrapped in community.
4: Hamilton recorded 100 interviews for the project, and she loaded Jukebox with the latest installment of stories last month. Former Cambridge residents came from around the country to celebrate the occasion, like Linda Jackson Izell who shared her story for Jukebox.
23: I'm 78 years old. I came up from Georgia.
4: Hamilton partnered with the Cambridge Black History Project to record Izell's and 53 other oral histories.
23: For my kids, my kids' kids, I just want them all to know their Grammy.
4: Izell's Jukebox story recounts her experiences in school and how even back then she wanted to be where the action was.
23: I did not want to miss a single thing going on in school. And so I was in the seventh grade. I got the whooping coughs, and I missed a whole week of school, and I nearly died. The whooping cough might have been the thing to kill me, but missing school was surely going to kill me dead. The
4: catalog on Jukebox is made up of 100 tracks, 100 stories of family, community, immigration, and lessons learned growing up in Cambridge, it's an oral anthology presented in the form of a classic American artifact. No coins needed. This jukebox is set on free play. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher.
0: It's Wednesday on WBUR, coming up at 8.20 here on Morning Edition. There are growing concerns about renewed attempts to pass security laws in Hong Kong. It's 7.49. Since
27: I've set up the Legacy gift, I feel like a real member of WBUR's family in a big way. And that makes me feel really good.
9: Build a strong future for WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org legacy.
25: The people who entertain us, the world in all its wonder, the ideas that spark creativity, joy and inspiration every day on All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. President Biden says he has decided on a response to the killing of three U.S. soldiers in Jordan, but has not yet provided specifics. A House committee has approved impeachment charges against the Homeland Security Secretary. And in Massachusetts, students in Newton are out of school for a ninth day as the teacher strike there continues. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
9: WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com.
0: Mid-30s and mostly cloudy today. Temperatures fall to around 30 tonight and skies will be overcast. Still overcast tomorrow. We'll warm up to the low 40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
13: And I'm Layla Falded. The journey toward electric vehicles has hit a rough patch. Buyers are still interested in EVs. Companies are bringing dozens of new models to market. But sales in the U.S. have stopped growing. And NPR's Camilla Dominowski takes a look.
3: For electric vehicles, it's a real good news, bad news scenario. The good news last year was a record year. million sold in the US. The bad news? Toward the end of the year, EV sales leveled off. I think we're just going from, we like to say rosy to reality. We're really starting to see the reality of it, right? Stephanie Valdez-Streety is with Cox Automotive. She says the reality is that EV sales will rise again. But we did start to see a slowdown, and I think that's just part of the story, right? It's with any new technology, there's the adoption curve. The adoption curve. Any new tech catches on first with tech geeks with early adopters. Then it has to win over the mainstream. And making that jump is hard. How hard? Well, consider how strange it might seem for EV growth to slow down now. There are more EV options than ever. They're not as expensive as they used to be. There are big tax credits, more chargers, and according to J.D. Power, more Americans than ever are considering EVs. But considering is not the same as buying. Last fall, just as EV sales were leveling off, I talked to car shopper Samir Joshi at the Detroit Auto Show.
23: EVs right now, I mean, I look at them, but I'm not going to buy them. Why not? Just because of the hassles with charging. And the second thing is cost. You know, they're too expensive. When I get something around 25000 yeah, I will consider buying them. And that's the
3: mainstream shopper in a nutshell. Early adopters will pay a little extra. They'll put up with charging hassles. Mainstream buyers want things to be cheaper and easier. Cheaper, that means they want prices to come down. Easier, that means they're waiting for more chargers to be built, maybe better technology. Pat Ryan runs the car shopping app Copilot.
24: It's, I don't want to call it a niche market for EVs because it's over a million, but you're still in the early adopter, early mainstream.
3: I asked Ryan how long, he thinks, before EVs really conquer the mass market.
28: I think it's three to five years. I mean, I think
24: they're going to they're gonna get to mainstream if they subsidize it, right? If they're willing to lose money. It depends how much money you're willing to lose. <laughs> and that is another
3: big wrinkle to this story, the tension between prices and profits. Remember Joshi, who's looking at EVs but waiting until they're cheaper to buy one? Cutting prices would speed up this journey up the adoption curve. Elon Musk talks about this a lot. Here he is on a call with investors last week.
1: It's not that people don't
19: want We have lots of people who want to buy our car, but simply cannot afford it.
3: But Tesla has already cut prices so much that it's hurting its own profits and putting lots of pressure on rivals. This is something Volkswagen is grappling with. They're one of the world's biggest automakers, but not a best seller in the US. EVs are at the heart of their plan to conquer the American market.
14: This is a unique chance for us, because everybody starts from scratch.
3: That's Volkswagen's chief financial officer, Arno Antlitz. He explains that Volkswagen, like most companies, makes more money selling gas-powered cars than EVs. For now. In two years, he thinks they'll be even. But that means the next couple years are tricky. The more EVs Volkswagen sells, the lower its profit margins are.
12: Don't get us wrong. We are absolutely committed to ramp up
14: electrification. That's clear. But it might be not as fast as everybody expected.
3: Ford and GM have recently slowed down their plans to make EVs. They too are adamant that the long-term destination is unchanged. Because they know they need to build them. The clock is ticking. California and other states have set 2035 as the year by which all new cars have to be zero emission. The urgency is because cleaning up cars is a key part of the plan to fight climate change. Which means the question of how fast exactly electric vehicles take off? There's a lot at stake for more than just automakers. Camila Domenoski, NPR News.
12: Hi there. It's uh, Steve Inskeep. Um, I just wanted to hop on here and say a few things. The way I'm talking now is the way some content creators speak on TikTok, and it's known as influencer speak or TikTok voice. It's a combination up-talk, where you sound like a question, when it's not a question, and the other element is vocal fry.
27: Broadly, this up-speak, this up-speak with talking does have a tendency to suggest hesitancy, questioning, less-than-assured tones, youthfulness. Laura
13: Purcell Verdun is a speech therapist and communication coach. She's had dozens of clients come to her because they want to get rid of these speech traits. The vocal fry is
27: noisy, so if they're in noisy environments, whether it's a restaurant or a boardroom, you need to be able to speak up. You need to have a strong, clear voice, noisier voices that are more vocal fry. Just don't carry. Adam Alexik, known as the etymology nerd on
12: TikTok, says the trend came out of the Valley Girl accent.
25: It's sort of a prestige dialect on the Internet that also helps with platform retention. When viewers are listening, they want to keep listening to people when they have uptick in their voice.
13: Now, recently, some TikTokers started mocking the accent. One of the first to do that was Natalia toryansky The content creator made a parody video of the, quote, cadence of every bland influencer after she caught herself doing it.
18: Hi, you guys. I wanted to show you the best
27: sweet treat.
12: (laughs) (laughs) The video struck a chord, so she made 18 more, which have received a total of 23 million views.
16: It's something that a lot of people were aware of and perceiving, but nobody was really talking about it.
13: Research shows that young women have a major influence on linguistic changes, and speech therapist Purcell Verdun says anyone can fall prey to TikTok voice, even
27: Stephensky maybe. These features of speaking, the vocal fry and the upward inflections, are pervasive. It's not just in the United States, and it's pervasive across genders as well.
12: In order to get rid of the TikTok voice,
13: Purcell Verdun recommends listening to a recording of yourself. Steve, do you listen to your pieces and think, "I'm falling prey to TikTok voice"? <laughs> well, yes. But your no. job is to ask questions.
12: I don't really fall prey, prey to TikTok <laughs> you do voice. do not. But I do listen back sometimes and critique myself and think, "Man, I didn't sound right there or whatever." And you try to learn, and and it's actually a process of getting to the to where you talk more like yourself.
13: Yeah. Same. Same. <gasps>
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
13: And I'm Layla Faldon.
12: Yes, you are.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Mid-30s today and mostly cloudy. The clouds stick around tonight. It'll be around 30. Overcast tomorrow and slightly warmer in the low 40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock.
9: WBUR supporters include ThoughtForms Custom Builders. Committed to building high-performance, healthy homes and spaces that bring people together. Supporting NENSA's John Ogden Youth and Introductory Programming. Learn more at thoughtforms-corp.com and nenza.net.
11: I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: In a party-line vote, a House committee approves impeachment charges against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. It's Wednesday, January 31st. This is WB Mar's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Federal Reserve faces a key decision with high stakes for the economy. When to begin cutting interest rates, some experts are urging caution.
7: So in the 70s, the Fed started removing accommodation too soon, inflation spiked back up, then we had to tighten, inflation came down, then we removed it again, it went back up.
0: And this hour with the Supreme Court set to consider whether Donald Trump can stay on the ballot, we'll look at what lawmakers intended with the 14th Amendment.
20: Well, they couldn't entirely anticipate what we're going through now, as no one could, but they meant it to be permanent.
0: And we remember Broadway legend Cheetah Rivera, who's died at age 91, mostly cloudy in 30s today. It's 801. Now the news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The House Homeland Security Committee has approved two articles to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports on the debate leading up to the party-line vote early this morning.
16: Committee Chair Mark Green argued Secretary Mayorkas put his political views above his duty to protect the country's security.
8: We cannot allow this man to remain in office any longer. The time for accountability is now.
16: The resolution charges Mayorkas with willfully ignoring the law and breaching the public's trust. Democrats on the panel call the effort a sham and say there's no evidence of a high crime or misdemeanor. Many accuse GOP lawmakers of taking their marching orders from former president and likely 2024 nominee Donald Trump, who is stressing border security in his campaign. Even if the charges are approved by the full House in the coming days, it's unlikely the Senate would remove Secretary Mayorkas. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol.
2: Special Counsel Jack Smith is in Florida today for a closed-door meeting with U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon. NPR's Greg Allen reports this will deal with former President Trump's upcoming trial on charges he withheld and concealed classified government documents.
17: It's not clear exactly why Judge Cannon set this meeting with Jack Smith. It's related to the special counsel office's request that a certain number of the classified and top secret documents not be available to Trump and his co-defendants for use at trial. In cases like this one that involve classified documents, a hearing is held before the trial to determine what material can be available to the defense and how it can be referenced without harming national security. In Trump's trial, the hearing is set for next month. Depending on how Judge Cannon, a Trump appointee, rules, the Government may appeal the decision. A move that could delay the trial beyond its currently scheduled May start date. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami.
2: President Biden has said he's decided how the U.S. will respond to the militant attack on U.S. soldiers last weekend in Jordan. He's declined to say more. Three U.S. soldiers were killed by an explosive drone and about 40 others were injured. The U.S. blames militants backed by Iran. Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder says the U.S. does not want a
24: wider war in the Middle East. U.S. Central Command, of course, is taking this very seriously, uh, and we will take necessary measures and steps to ensure that our forces are protected, uh, recognizing as well that, that this is a dangerous neighborhood.
2: Iran has insisted it had nothing to do with the deadly attack, and today, Iran says, it will decisively respond to any attack on its country. President Biden will help receive the bodies of the fallen U.S. soldiers this Friday, at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. Meanwhile, fighting in Gaza has increased between Hamas militants and Israeli troops. That includes fighting near an urban refugee camp in northern Gaza and Israeli strikes on the southern Gaza
0: city of Han Yunus. You're listening to NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. Newton teachers are still without a contract as they continue to negotiate a new agreement with the city. Their strike will keep schools closed for a ninth day today. Teacher and union negotiator Ryan Normandin says the two groups do not agree on several key issues. I
5: don't think the school committee really understands who we are and why we're on strike and what we're fighting for. Cost of living adjustments are important, but I stand up here every night and I tell you what our priorities are. Living wage for our, our AIDS and behavioral therapists, large humane parental leave, mental health supports for our kids. These are the things that we're really fighting for, and they tie those cost of living adjustment increases to rejecting all of these other proposals. We can't accept that.
0: Newton Mayor Ruth M. Fuller is critical of the strike, calling it bad for students and families. A new report from the city of Boston is shedding light on the priorities for black men and boys in the city. The survey commissioned by the Office of Black Male Advancement found that respondents were most concerned about education, workforce development, and community trauma. The office's executive director, Frank Farrow, says he's focused on filling in those gaps.
4: Making sure that Black men are supported through their education, that they have well-paying jobs and employment, and then they have the opportunity to thrive in the city of Boston and build wealth um, and build families.
0: The office is working to expand its Boston Public Schools Mentorship Program and connect students with apprenticeships. New federal regulations are now in effect that require museums to get consent from Native tribes before displaying objects that are culturally important. Nancy Cohen reports the regulations took effect this month. The Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act has new rules. They clarify museums are supposed to proactively consult with tribes, says Shannon O'Loughlin of the Association on American Indian Affairs.
21: Specifically uses the terms free, prior, and informed consent when describing what institutions are supposed to obtain before they do anything with their native collections.
0: Mount Holyoke College Art Museum has removed two native objects from display. Springfield Museums have removed items from its native hall and plans to consult with tribes about them. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen.
11: It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting our time on Earth. Featuring creative collaborations from 12 countries, this exhibition uses immersive digital artworks and natural materials to reimagine the future of our planet. Visit on February 17th for opening day art making and events. Learn more at PEM.org.
0: The Celtics are off today after a close home win against the Indianapolis Pacers. Final score last night was 129-124. to The Seas play their next four games at home starting tomorrow night against the Lakers. Mostly cloudy today. Highs will be in the mid-30s. Skies stay mostly cloudy tonight. Temperatures will fall to lows around 30. Tomorrow, cloudy with highs in the low 40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
4: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives, and the listeners who support this NPR station.
13: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel, And
12: I'm Steve Inskeep. Inflation has eased. Thanks in part to the Federal Reserve, which has spent two years raising interest rates. Now they face a question, how soon to start cutting them? The Fed's policymakers, the people who sent interest rates, are completing a two-day meeting today. And NPR correspondents Scott Horsley and David Gura are following this. Hi, gentlemen. Hi. Hey, Steve. Uh, Scott, what are you looking for today?
6: Well, it's all but certain the Fed is going to hold interest rates steady today. Uh, There's not much suspense about that. The question is, what kind of smoke signals are we going to get about possible rate cuts at the next few meetings? You know, and it is a balancing act. The Fed doesn't want to cut rates too quickly and run the risk of rekindling inflation, but it also doesn't want to wait too long and take a chance on slowing the economy more than it has to. The Fed is probably not going to spell out a precise timetable for rate cuts today, but Fed watchers will be reading between the lines the policy statement, you know, parsing every word that Fed Chairman Jerome Powell says at his news conference. If Powell talks a lot about the recent drop in inflation, that might suggest the Fed is leaning towards an earlier rate cut. If, on the other hand, Powell is all about the strong job market and strong consumer spending and strong economic growth, well, that would point instead towards a more cautious, patient approach.
12: David Gura, I've been doing some in-depth research, by which I mean I just Googled the Dow Jones Industrial Average, (laughs) and it's gone up the past couple of months. Is that just investors expecting buying into an interest rate cut in a growing economy?
8: Yeah, we saw the Dow Jones Industrial Average set a new record. The S&P 500, the kind of broader-based larger index, has set a couple of new records as well. This comes after a strong year for stocks. 2024 got off to a slow start. Investors were fairly cautious, but then things really started to rally And boom, and what's animating Wall Street lately, Steve, what's made investors more optimistic and confident is all of the strong economic data that Scott just mentioned. Remember, when rates go down, borrowing costs go down, and that juices the economy and usually leads to higher stock prices. These economic data have fueled Wall Street's expectations the Fed will feel, one, confident enough in the not-too-distant future to cut interest rates, and two, that it'll feel comfortable enough to keep cutting them several times in 2024 which is something Fed Chair Jerome Powell didn't really challenge at his last news conference. I know Scott was there back in December. John Canavan is the lead market analyst at Oxford Economics who noticed a change in tone from the Fed Chair in his comments about the Fed's path forward.
4: Powell was really quite quasi about the issue and offered very little pushback against the idea that the Fed is getting close to, uh, to cutting rates.
8: After that news conference, stocks surged. But what we've seen in recent weeks, Steve, is Wall Street sort of recalibrating its expectations. Markets are now pricing in only a 50% chance the Fed will cut rates at the meeting after this one in March.
12: Okay. So a little bit of skepticism there. Does that mean they do not believe the battle against inflation is really won?
6: A lot is going to depend on what the economic numbers show over the next couple of months. You know, there have been certainly been encouraging numbers in recent months about what inflation's up to. Over the last six months or so, so so-called core inflation has been tracking right around 2%, which is the Fed's target. If that positive trend continues for another month or two, it's conceivable the central bank will feel okay about cutting rates in March. On the other hand, if the upcoming numbers show inflation's running a little hotter than that, or if the job market and consumer spending are particularly strong in the next few months, Then the Fed may decide to hold off. One of the people sitting around the table making that decision is Rafael Bostic. He's the head of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. And I'd put him in the cautious camp. Uh, He told the Atlanta Rotary Club this month he's going to be very careful not to declare victory over inflation prematurely.
7: We have history on this. So in the 70s, the Fed started removing accommodation too soon. Inflation spiked back up. Then we had to tighten. Inflation came down. Then we removed it again. It went back up. And by the time we were done with that, all Americans could think about was inflation.
6: And the last thing the Fed wants is a rerun of that 70s show. Bostic says right now all the signs do look pretty good for a so-called soft landing. That is, inflation's coming down, but the economy's still holding up. But he noted there have been a number of curveballs already in this cycle where things did not turn out the way the Fed thought they would. And so he and his colleagues are not taking anything for granted.
12: Are the cautious Fed governors and the excited investors really on the same page though?
8: It's been described to me as a game of -of tug-of-war, Steve. Strategists told me that adding this kind of dissonance or this kind of disconnect between markets and the Fed isn't unusual and markets can kind of help and hinder the Fed in its fight against high inflation. Of course, a lot of key interest rates are tied to bonds and right now the bond market is still behaving as if interest rates are going to come down soon.
6: Hmm. You can see that, for example, in the mortgage market Mm -hmm. where mortgage rates have already come down. They were up near 8% back in October. Now they're somewhere just over 6.5%.
8: Kind of illustrates that the market is doing some of the Fed's work for it. Uh, Christina Hooper is the chief global market strategist at Invesco. And I asked her how much the Fed worries about being on the same page as Wall Street. And she said the Fed's not worried the market has in some way gotten it wrong.
18: It's more about, hey, we're worried the market does understand where we're going, but we don't want it to get ahead of itself because that will cause financial conditions to ease and that will make our job
2: harder.
8: The Fed's fear is markets could get too bullish, and if stocks surge and yields fall too much, that could limit the effectiveness of the Fed's tools, especially if we were to see stronger and stronger growth.
6: And as you mentioned, at various points, investors have gotten ahead of themselves, and the central bank has come out and smacked them down, warning (laughs) them not to bet too heavily on a rapid cut in interest rates. But as you said, David, we didn't hear that kind of warning from Jerome Powell at the last Fed meeting in December. Uh, We'll see if he waves the caution flag today.
12: NPR, Scott Horsley, and David Gura, thanks to both of you.
6: You're welcome. Thank you.
13: From the UN to the US to the Middle East, officials that are not Palestinians say a lot about a post-war Gaza.
6: I think Israel will, for uh, an indefinite period, will have the overall security responsibility because we've seen what happened. The United States continues to believe that the best viable path, indeed the only path, is through a two-state solution.
26: How could anybody talk about the future of Gaza when we do not know what kind of Gaza will be left once this aggression ends?
13: But this Palestinian territory is not their home. So we've reached out to Palestinians, some inside and some outside of Gaza, to ask for their vision of the future. We start that series of conversations today with a storyteller, journalist Plesia al In the days before this war, she shared the fashion and the beauty of Gaza on her Instagram and TikTok accounts, including the beach. Before we spoke about the future, I asked Al-Akad about her life in the days before October 7th.
29: I loved my life in Gaza, yet it was full of challenges and struggles because of the occupation. And the sad thing, we thought that's the normal life. We thought having four to six hours of electricity a day is normal. We thought that the borders opening and closing whenever, not being able to travel uh, whenever we want is normal. Since I was born, I was living in Gaza and living under occupation. So you come to normalize this not normal life.
13: Then it all changed when Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. Al-Aqad started documenting Israel's punishing response. She and other Palestinian journalists became a window for the world inside the Gaza Strip. In her blue press flak jacket, she reported despite the dangers.
29: I'm inside Al-Shaba Hospital right now. It's really crowded. It's full of people
13: who... Today is my birthday.
29: I turned 22 years old today. That means I'm for aggressions. The point of my Instagram account and vlogging my life and filming stories is a humanizing us Palestinians. I don't want the world to see us as numbers only. No, I want them to know us, to know how we're feeling, to know what we're really going through. I want to show the world what the
13: mainstream media is not showing. You're only 22, reporting on a war. And not just reporting on a war, living through it. What were the challenges? What was driving you?
29: Everything was so difficult as a human and as a journalist, like I'm working as a journalist with no internet. I have to use e-sims and go to certain places to have internet. There's no electricity. Yeah. We're so afraid of the mic, the camera. If they stopped working, we can't buy other supplies. We can't buy anything, you know, and we're trying to survive like we're journalists. We want to show the world what's happening, yet we're trying not to get killed and targeted just because we are
13: journalists. You're hearing American officials talk about what Gaza should look like in the future. But I want to know from you what you want the future to be in Gaza.
29: I just want to live to see Palestine free.
13: You also described the destruction. And you spent so much time showing beautiful places in Gaza. Can that be rebuilt, the Gaza that you knew?
29: It will be rebuilt. And I know that for a fact. But you know what's the thing? How many times will we rebuild it? Mm. This is not the first time that buildings and houses get demolished and us rebuilding it again. But how many times would we rebuild it? How many times would we create memories and it will get erased? We're humans. We have energy, you know.
13: Plastia al is a Palestinian journalist from Gaza, and she's speaking to us from Australia. Plastia, thank you so much.
29: Thank you for your time as well.
13: Cheetah Rivera has
12: died. The Tony Award winner was 91.
13: Rivera played Anita in the original 1957 Broadway production of West Side Story.
29: I like the island
13: As I do, too.
12: Cheetah Rivera was her stage name. Growing up in Washington, D.C., she was known
22: as... Dolores Conchita Figueroa. Del Rivero. Hmm.
10: She
13: spoke with NPR's Susan Stamberg last year. Rivera described her start in ballet and how she moved to Broadway. She was influenced by the dancer Jerome Robbins, who directed and choreographed West Side Story.
10: He mixed
22: a little bit of jazz in there, a twist of the hip, a twist of the leg. Hmm. Rivera's voice
12: and steps also stood out in Chicago. Bye Bye Birdie and Kiss of the Spider-Woman. We're sort of dancing here in Studio 31. This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning that Iran is threatening to, quote, decisively respond to any U.S. strikes by President Biden in retaliation for the killing of three U.S. soldiers in Jordan. Also, a U.S. House panel has voted along party lines to approve impeachment charges against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the 14th Amendment bars insurrectionists from holding public office. With the Supreme Court set to consider whether it should apply to Donald Trump, Harvard professor Jill Lepore weighs in on what the people who passed the law would think. It's 820. WBUR supporters
9: include La Cuchara Restaurants and Food Truck, helping you rev up your corporate and private events. Online booking available at LaCuchara.com. And the Executive Ph.D. Program in Business at Bentley. Three years, part-time, for professionals seeking data research skills. Online info sessions, February 9th and 21st. You follow the news every day on WBUR. But how well do you really know the
17: news? It's time to play the puzzle.
16: One across, digital trash. Five letters, south of Ecuador.
17: Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at wbur.org fun
16: Five across, biggest toy maker.
0: Four down, rock concert pit.
17: Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun.
0: Highs in the mid-30s today under mostly cloudy skies. Still overcast tonight as it falls to around 30. Cloudy again tomorrow. Highs will be in the low 40s. It's 29 degrees in Boston.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive, Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the
13: sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin.
12: And I'm Steve Inskeep. The government of Hong Kong is discussing even tighter national security laws. China's government, the national government, has already cracked down on the freedoms that people in that territory once had. Now the Beijing-dominated government, the local government, has proposed a range of new limitations to address security concerns such as treason and what's called sabotage to the operation of foreign organizations. What's going on here? Thomas Kellogg is executive director of the Center for Asian Law at Georgetown University. Welcome to the program, sir.
7: Well, good to be with you, Steve.
12: So I read that that the local government has submitted this proposed law for public discussion, and my first thought was uh, whether people in Hong Kong are even free to discuss things anymore. Are they?
7: I think you're absolutely right that that's a key concern. So under the 2020 national security law, there are real limits on criticism of the government. So one concern here is, are we going to have a robust discussion of some of the very real problems with this new proposal uh, i'm not sure that that's going to be the case is there really a security concern
12: that needs to be addressed by the government in hong
7: kong absolutely not Um, i traveled to hong kong on a regular basis uh, prior to 2020 prior to the covid crisis Uh, And I saw it firsthand, a robust, open society that was open for business, that was open for, uh, you know, academics like myself to come and do research. Um, All of that has changed as a result of the post-2020 crackdown under the national security law that you mentioned. And I'm afraid that uh, this new law is going to further restrict what hong kongers can do and and what international folks can do as well
12: um there is in this list of things that they say they want to fight against this interesting phrase sabotage to the operation of foreign organizations what are they worried about when they say they want to crack down on sabotage to the operation of foreign organizations
7: yeah, yeah that's um two separate uh, provisions one related to sabotage and one related to foreign organization. So on the sabotage side, you have what looks like to be an attempt by uh, the government to politicize public protest. So certainly during public protest, if public spaces uh, get damaged or even vandalized, they get vandalized, that can be a crime, but it's not some sort of act of sabotage. So the government is imposing heavier penalties there. And then on the foreign organization side, what you've seen is an effort by the Hong Kong government over the past year to target exile organizations here in Washington, in London, and elsewhere that are lobbying uh, the U.S. government, the U.K. government, and and others to take what's happening in Hong Kong very seriously. It seems that they want to use this new law to also tackle these overseas activists.
12: Um, I just want to... Give a hypothetical example you're at georgetown university in washington dc you have opinions about hong kong are you telling me that in theory this law might give the government power to put some kind of sanction on georgetown university or get someone in trouble who's connected with georgetown university because of your opinion
7: well they could uh, unfortunately uh, criminally charge me under these i mean we'll have to see the text of the new law when it comes out but under the proposal uh, a lot of the criticism of the law could be criminalized. And I think a key part of what they're trying to do is make sure that Hong Kongers in Hong Kong don't have contact with critics of the government in Washington, London, or elsewhere.
12: We've just got about 20 seconds left, but China has already cracked down on freedoms in Hong Kong. Does this additional step suggest that the government is in fact worried, afraid?
7: Uh, I'm afraid that it does. And what I would urge is that the Hong Kong government needs to turn the page on the 2020 crackdown, and start uh, focusing on economic development, start focusing on rebuilding ties to the international community. Instead, they're doubling down on national security.
12: Thomas Kellogg is the executive director at the Center for Asian Law at Georgetown University. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Steve.
13: Nine American figure skaters are only just now celebrating after learning they are officially Olympic gold medal winners. They're being honored for their performance in the team skating competition at the last Winter Games in Beijing. These results were delayed nearly two years by a doping scandal involving a star Russian figure skater. As NPR's Brian Mann reports, U.S. Olympic officials say this is a victory for clean sport.
25: American skater and co-captain of the 2022 U.S. figure skating team, Evan Bates, said he began this week not knowing his place in Olympic sports history.
15: We really had no idea. We were bracing ourselves. It was going to be silver, and we woke up with incredible news that it's gold. Here's what happened.
25: At the Winter Games in Beijing, star Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva competed even though she had tested positive months earlier for a banned substance. That roiled the Olympics and triggered a slow bureaucratic process that culminated this week with a ruling from a tribunal in Switzerland called the Court of Arbitration for Sport that disqualified Valjeva's Olympic performance. Valjeva is banned from international competition through the end of next year. That change was enough to bump Team USA from silver to gold. At a press conference Tuesday, American skater Madison Chalk, also a team co-captain, described the feeling.
13: Amazing, quite frankly. A feeling I've always dreamed of and I almost can't believe is here. I'm still wrapping my head around the reality of everything.
25: Japanese skaters will now take the silver medal. Despite valjeva being disqualified, the International Skating Union ruled Russian skaters will still receive the team bronze medal ahead of Canada, who took fourth. Canadian sports officials who hope for the bronze have protested. Despite that lingering muddle, Sarah Hersland, head of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, described this as an important victory for clean, drug-free competition.
23: A system
3: is growing and improving, ensuring that all athletes from around the world can count on showing up to compete on a level playing field
25: and fair play. U.S. athletes and sports officials say they've now begun a process to determine how and where these gold medals will be awarded. Skater Madison Chalk says they hope to hold the ceremony at the next Olympics.
13: At the Paris Games this summer, that would be the dream scenario.
25: This is the first gold medal ever for the U.S. in the Olympic team skating competition. Brian Mann, NPR News.
13: This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next. And coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition, Elon Musk has announced that his company Neuralink has implanted a brain chip in a person for the first time. It's an effort to help people who've lost limbs control devices with their minds. It's 8.29. Join Here and Now's Robin Young next Tuesday, February 6th at City Space for a conversation with Pulitzer Prize finalist Daniel Mason. He'll be talking about his hit novel, Northwoods. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events.
22: WBUR supporters include ThoughtForms custom builders committed to building high-performance, healthy homes and spaces that bring people together, supporting NENSA's John Ogden Youth and introductory programming. Learn more at thoughtforms-corp.com and nensa.net.
21: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The prime minister of Qatar is warning that the situation in Gaza poses the risk of a regional conflict. Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdulrahman bin Jassim Nathani says the situation in Gaza is no longer tolerable.
1: We need to focus on ending this war. We need to focus on overcoming the obstacles on the hostages deal and how to contain the situation in the region and how to ensure that there are better prospects for the Palestinian, in order not to have such a conflict in the future.
21: Speaking there to NPR's Morning Edition. Former President Donald Trump will be in the nation's capital today to try to peel away President Biden's support from labor. NPR's Giles Snyder reports Trump's meeting with members of the more than one million member strong Teamsters Union.
5: The former president will be in Washington as the Teamsters Union weighs its endorsement. Labor unions have historically found a home with Democrats, and President Biden has won endorsements from most of the nation's major labor groups, notably the United Auto Workers Union just last week. But Teamsters President Sean O'Brien has said the votes of Teamsters members will not be taken for granted.
21: NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. World financial markets, Asia markets closed in mixed territory. The Nikkei up six-tenths of a percent. The Hang Sang down 1.3 percent. U.S. futures contracts are trading in mixed territory. You're listening to NPR News.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. Governor Maura Healy and Boston Mayor Michelle Wu tour the Melnia Cass Recreational Center in Roxbury this morning. The state will use the site as a temporary shelter to house some 100 migrant families. Some residents are concerned by the decision, saying the neighborhood relies on the community space. Also in Roxbury, Walgreens is closing a store today, despite pushback from neighbors and members of the state's congressional delegation. Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley says this is the latest in a series of stores closed by the pharmacy giant. She says they've happened mostly in black and Latino neighborhoods. Pressley spoke about it yesterday on the House floor. When
27: a Walgreens leaves a neighborhood, they disrupt the entire community, and they, take them, and they take with them baby formula, diapers, asthma inhalers, life-saving medications, and, of course, jobs. These closures are not arbitrary, and they are not innocent. They are life-threatening acts of racial and economic discrimination.
0: Walgreens says it has transferred customer prescriptions to a nearby store and that it'll provide free prescription delivery for 90 days. No school in Newton today as the teacher strike there continues. Teachers say they remain at odds with the city as they negotiate a new contract. The strike is now approaching two weeks, making it one of the longest for the state in decades. A Boston-based artist has completed work on a -a one-of-a-kind jukebox in Cambridge. WBUR's Solon Kelleher spoke with her about this unusual oral history project.
4: Most jukeboxes play music. J, five... This one plays stories about Cambridge through the decades. Artist Elisa Hamilton recorded interviews with Cambridge residents and recently installed the latest batch of interviews.
27: I hope that listeners will take away what a special and unique place Cambridge was and continues to be.
4: Jukebox is a permanent art installation at the Foundry in Cambridge. Its 100 stories can also be heard online on the project's website. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. It's 833. WBUR supporters include Habib and Associates Architects, providing architectural
0: services for projects designed to improve your community. Habibarch.com Pro hockey is quiet for the All-Star break. Meanwhile, the Celtics won again last night, beating the Indiana Pacers 129-124. to Mostly overcast today. Highs will be in the mid-30s. Still cloudy tonight. Temperatures will be around 30. Cloudy with highs in the low 40s tomorrow. There's a slight chance of rain Thursday night. It's 29 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Kauffman
18: Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at
13: waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep.
12: States are making different decisions about allowing Donald Trump's name on the presidential ballot. The Illinois Board of Elections said yesterday it's fine. Maine and Colorado said it's not, and the U.S. Supreme Court is deciding if states really have that power.
13: Colorado Supreme Court said Trump is not qualified for the presidency under the Constitution's 14th Amendment. Section 3 of that amendment says you can't serve in federal office if you once took an oath to support the United States and then engaged in insurrection or rebellion.
12: This amendment became law in the 1860s after the Civil War. Many justices on the Supreme Court are originalists. They judge things based on the original public meaning of the law. So historians have submitted a friend of the court brief on what the law means. They include Jill Lepore and David Blight.
10: If the court's going to make its decisions based on an originalist interpretation, they do need good history. It does then become a kind of civic obligation of historians to provide the court the best and most accurate historical evidence. There seem to be
12: several questions about the 14th Amendment. And the first is whether it still applies today or was just intended to apply to rebels from the Civil War that had just ended. What does the history tell you?
10: Yeah, the history on that point is quite clear. And actually, I will say, also moving. People were terrified. We can barely imagine the scale of suffering in a war that had cost 700,000 lives. Mm-hmm and had lasted for four years. And soon afterward, ex-Confederates were being re-elected to Congress. So the palpable concern people had that this kind of violence would become a feature of American life, and that the only way to stop that was with Section 3. The discussion turned to, we need to make sure that this is in place to prevent future insurrections.
12: When you look at the discussions, the debates about that language, did anybody address whether it was just for former Confederates or whether it was forever?
10: Absolutely. Sort of repeatedly, people would just sort of read into the record their understanding that what they were agreeing to here was a provision that would apply not only to ex-Confederates but to future insurrectionists. So a Missouri Republican named John B. Anderson, on the day he cast his vote for the 14th Amendment in the Senate, said the language of this section is so framed As to disenfranchise from office the leaders of the past rebellion as well as the leaders of any rebellion hereafter to come
12: so there's no doubt in your mind that when we're talking about disqualifying people for insurrection that means now as well as 1868 that means any other thing as well as the civil war
20: well they couldn't entirely anticipate what we're going through now as no one could but they meant it to be permanent The next
12: controversy that's being discussed today is whether, because of its wording, it applies to all officials except the president, or does it also apply to a president?
10: So there's a whole lot of legal nitpicking around this, which, from a historian's vantage, is nothing short of bizarre. It defies the record of the drafting. It defies the logic of Section 3. And it also defies what originals would describe as the public understanding of Section 3. There's an incredible terror about Jefferson Davis in particular, who, you know, unlike Trump, had not been president of the United States, he had been President of the Confederacy, but that he would make a bid for the presidency was a real concern.
20: And I'd also add, if they try, they being the court, to use this idea that because Section 3 doesn't explicitly name the president, they're effectively making up a technicality because it says anyone who took an oath and held high office. Now, if the president isn't an officer of the United States, then who is? Who gets to decide if someone should
12: be disqualified? In this case, the Colorado State Supreme Court has decided. We have other instances where a secretary of state of a state has decided. What does the history tell you there?
10: If you look in the congressional petitions database, among the petitions that you find in 1868 and 1869 are many, many, many petitions from ex-Confederates to Congress seeking the removal of their Section 3 disability. None of these people have been convicted of insurrection. It was their understanding, as it was indeed the understanding of those who framed Section 3, that it would be self-executing.
12: We have this controversy today over whether various state officials can keep people off the ballot, which gets to the question of who can decide if someone engaged in insurrection if they denied it. Is there any history as to whether almost any random official or any specific official acted on this and said, listen, the facts are what the facts are. You cannot serve.
20: Well, there's very little precedent here of any kind. Let's face it, Section 3 had all but vanished from history and it's just suddenly risen from the dead. And that is why this so quickly went right directly to the Supreme Court. Uh, what we tried to focus on, as Jill said, is the actual history beneath why it was done and what it means and what its consequences are.
12: Does the attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021, and the larger effort to overturn Trump's defeat in the 2020 election, does that count as insurrection? Does the history tell you anything about the original public meaning of that word as it existed in the 1860s?
9: Well,
20: I would only say, despite the fact that the Confederacy is the largest dissent in American history, they never invaded the U.S. Capitol building. They never got there. Mm-hmm. In the January 6th case, a mob invaded the U.S. Capitol by violence and force to overturn the count of the Electoral College And they were openly, vigorously prompted by the president of the United States. If that's not insurrection, then neither was the Confederacy.
12: Is it wise to disqualify someone that millions of people apparently want to vote for rather than defeating him at the ballot box, which is the way that many people would think it ought to work?
10: He was defeated at the ballot box, and he incited an insurrection.
20: Great answer. And I would only add that we all want to believe in this basic principle. It's one of Jefferson's four first principles in the Declaration of Popular Sovereignty. The people rule. We have representative democracy. Fine. But we also have laws. And I don't think in this case a degree of popular will should be the only question in the enforcement of the Constitution, which is itself quite clear
10: there is no one who relishes the idea of section three being applied in this case there is no glee to be had there is no triumph in striking trump from a ballot but this is what the constitution says and this is a court that has pledged to abide by the original intention meaning and public understanding of the constitution and it has to come up with an answer to this history
12: The historians who submitted a friend of the court brief to the United States Supreme Court on this question include David Blight and Jill Lepore. Thanks to you both. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Steve. David Blight wrote Frederick Douglass, prophet of freedom. Jill Lepore wrote these truths. It's NPR News.
0: Broadway legend Cheetah Rivera has died at age 91. She appeared in more than 20 Broadway musicals over six decades, creating a number of indelible roles, including Anita in West Side Story. We're remembering Cheetah Rivera today on 90.9 WPR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report has news of layoffs by global shipper, UPS. The company says it hopes to save a billion dollars this year by eliminating. 12,000 jobs, most of them in management. Mid-30s and mostly cloudy today, overcast and low 30s tonight, cloudy tomorrow with a warm-up
11: to the low 40s. It's 29 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Mass General Brigham has a
0: new partnership focused on cancer and rare disease treatments. The hospital network is entering a collaboration with drug maker Astellas that'll expand research in those areas. Astellas says it hopes some of the research will lead to clinical trials and become future treatments. Boston-based Gibson Sotheby's International Realty is expanding. The group is acquiring unlimited Sotheby's International Realty, which operates in Newton, Brookline, and Jamaica Plain. The company tells the Boston Business Journal the acquisition will grow the Sotheby's brand. The financial terms of the deal have not been released. The Cape Codder Resort and Spa in Hyannis plans to rebrand this summer as the Margaritaville Resort Cape Cod. This is the first location of the Jimmy Buffett-inspired hotel chain in New England. The resort will include an indoor water park and Margaritaville-themed restaurants. It's 844.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car scrub-a-dub clean anytime you want. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
13: And I'm Leila Faudel. This week, Elon Musk announced that his company, Neuralink, implanted a chip into a human brain for the first time ever. The chip is supposed to give people the ability to control devices using brainwaves, which sounds kind of scary. And there's a lot of concern that this technology, if it works would create access to the thoughts in people's heads. Chile enshrined neuro rights into its constitution two years ago. It's part of a similar effort across Latin America. And now at least two U.S. states are considering legislation to that effect to protect those private thoughts. Rafael Uste has been a part of those efforts. He's a professor of biological sciences and neuroscience at Columbia University. He also co-founded the Neuro Rights Foundation. Good morning. Thanks for being on the program.
14: Hi, good morning everyone.
13: So let's start with the basics. What are neuro rights?
14: Okay, so neuro rights are new human rights to protect brain activity and brain data, brain information. And uh, the reason uh, this has to be protected is because for the first time in history, we have the technology, neurotechnology, that allows us to map the activity of the brain and the neurons in the brain, to decipher it and also to alter it. So this Mm. is the first time that we can get uh, with that technology, which are brain chips or optical technology or magnetic, into the brains of people.
13: Okay, so but in layman's terms, does this mean people could read your thoughts, change the way you think? I mean, what could this do?
14: Um, Down the line, that would be possible. In fact, this is possible already with uh, patients. Uh, There's uh, Neurotechnology has been pioneered in the lab and in the clinic to help patients that have, for instance, paralysis. And you can implant a chip in the brain and uh, use that chip as a brain-computer interface to connect the person's brain to a computer or to robotic arms, and uh, that way uh, interpret the thoughts. Mm. And this has also been done to decode speech in language in in people that are paralyzed and cannot speak, and through neurotechnology they can communicate with the outside.
13: So it sounds like there are really positive opportunities with this type of technology, but also if used in the wrong way, it sounds like it could be quite uh, invasive.
14: Yeah, I mean, just like every other technology that the humans have invented, starting with the fire, you can always use it for good or for bad. No? And neurotechnology is the same. No? so it's neutral. And obviously people like us were developing it, uh, for scientific and medical reasons. You no, know, I'm originally an MD. You no, know, and we have to. We have the urgency to help all these patients. Who among your audience doesn't have family members or friends that suffer from uh, some devastating brain disease? You no, know? but these same methods that are allow us to go into the brain of a paralyzed person and have her talk to us, you no, know, can be used to decode the thoughts of of someone who who's not paralyzed or, or decode images or or get into the sensit- sensitive data.
13: Um, just really quickly, I know your foundation has helped to shape legislation in ways to protect neuroprivacy. I mean, are there any federal protections for neuroprivacy, and what types of protections do there need to be?
14: Yeah. So, if the neurotechnology is used in the clinic, then uh, we're good. It's protected by HIPAA. It's protected by. It's uh, allowed by the FDA. No. So uh, they fall within the, the realm of medical technology, and brain data is treated as sensitive.
13: Rafael Uste is a professor of biological sciences at Columbia University and a co-founder of the NeuroRights Foundation. Thank you for your time. Thank you. This is
0: Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin.
12: and I'm Steve Inskeep.
0: Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with a report from Gaza about the children who've been made orphans by the war. United Nations aid organizations are warning of worsening conditions there after many countries paused funding for the main UN agency operating in Gaza. It's eight forty nine.
22: Abortion rights was an issue Republicans thought they could rally
2: around, but election results post-Roe have some local legislators backtracking and doctors living in fear. We
16: find ourselves in exactly the position that lawmakers intended
27: us to be in. We're scared to death to provide care, and so it's withheld.
2: When the law of the land does not align with public opinion, on all things considered, from NPR News.
22: Listen
0: today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. A judge could issue a major civil penalty today against former President Donald Trump as part of his New York fraud trial. Interest rates are expected to hold steady as policymakers with the Federal Reserve wrap up a two-day meeting today. And CEOs with some of the world's biggest tech companies are back in Washington testifying on child safety before Congress. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
22: WBUR supporters include Explo. Where curiosity fuels discovery, Explo is part magic, part summer enrichment program for kids and teens entering grades 4 through 12. Day and overnight programs in Boston, Berkeley, London, New York, and Oxford. For more information, visit XBlow.org summer.
0: Mid-30s and mostly cloudy today. Temperatures fall to around 30 tonight and skies will be overcast. Still overcast tomorrow will warm up to the low 40s. It's 29 degrees in Boston.
5: A judge negates Elon Musk's big Tesla pay package. Marketplace Morning Report is supported
22: by C3 Generative AI. Verified traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at
5: C3.ai. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. A judge has struck down Elon Musk's compensation package at Tesla, valued at nearly $56 billion. The judge in Delaware, where Tesla is incorporated, called the amount unfathomable and said Tesla's board failed to meet its responsibilities to shareholders. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more.
28: David, this ruling stems from a lawsuit brought by a shareholder over Elon Musk's compensation deal with Tesla struck back in 2018. It is a record amount, $56 billion in the form of stock options. In the ruling, the judge at Delaware Chancery Court essentially said that the Tesla board and the people negotiating on the company's behalf failed to exercise enough independence to act in the best interests of shareholders. Now, this is particularly relevant because of where this ruling takes place, as Eric Gordon, professor at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business, pointed out to us this morning.
25: The Chancery Court in Delaware is a specialized court. It specializes in corporate cases. So if you have a corporate law case, you go to this court full of judges who are very well-versed, very well-experienced in just these cases. So you don't get in front of a judge whose background
5: is
24: divorce law.
5: And Mr. Musk is complaining about the state of
28: Delaware? You'd be surprised to find out he is. Uh, His response came on Twitter uh or x he put out several posts the first saying never incorporate your company in the state of Delaware he also put out a poll asking whether he should change tesla's incorporation to texas uh the judge's ruling can be appealed david but th- that would take some time in the meantime the ruling could affect musk's future compensation he has been asking for a bigger ownership stake in tesla all right many firms incorporate in delaware Uh,
5: The Chancery Court is dedicated to legal matters. 60% of the Fortune 500 have their legal homes in that one tiny state. Now, a private sector tally of American payrolls just came in weaker than expected. ADP payrolls this month increased by just 107,000 when forecasters were expecting 150,000. An index of what it costs to employ people posted its smallest increase in two and a half years, suggesting inflation is really coming down. The official hiring and unemployment reports for the month are due on Friday. UPS says it's going to end the jobs of 12,000 people in the coming months. It's to save money and to boost profits at a time of lower worldwide growth in package delivery. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes has more on why most of the layoffs will be management positions.
16: Trimming the fat, cutting costs, right-sizing. These are all phrases that shareholders love to hear, says Peter Capelli, a professor of management at the Wharton School. And he says when a company cuts costs by eliminating jobs, managers are often a prime target.
22: It's hard to measure what they do often. If you're cutting frontline workers, we kind of know what that does. And for a company like UPS, you can't easily cut those folks and deliver the packages.
16: UPS says that AI might be able to pick up the managerial slack, but Capelli isn't so sure.
22: So far, you know, you can't point to very much that says, aha, it's taking over this function.
16: There have also been layoffs recently in tech, media and finance. And University of Virginia business professor Yo-Jud Chang says that means It's
0: going to become a little bit more challenging for laid off workers to find new roles, just because a lot of other companies are going through a similar process.
16: Chang says layoffs could turn out to be contagious. If companies see their peers cutting jobs, they might decide they need to be a little leaner themselves. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace.
5: Advertising giant Alphabet, Google, YouTube reported disappointing ad sales for last quarter yesterday and its capital expenditures were up. Competition from China-based rival TikTok is intense and Alphabet stock is down 5.3 percent in pre-market trading now. Let's do the indexes here mixed. Nasdaq futures are down a lot, 1%. S&P futures are down four tenths percent Dow futures are up a tenth of a percent. In about five hours, the bulletin from the Federal Reserve will hit. It will likely announce no change in interest rates for now. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer is our Fed watcher.
22: Fed Chair Jerome Powell is facing another tough balancing act today. He'll have to acknowledge that inflation is slowing. The Fed has been raising interest rates to slow the economy and cool inflation, but it doesn't want to overdo it. Investors are expecting the Fed to start cutting rates as early as March. Gregory Dako is chief economist at EY. He says Powell will also have to make it clear that inflation could still flare up again.
8: Supply chains um, or transportation costs could start to uh, feel more pressure with shipping costs rising and that could potentially be fed into consumer goods prices.
22: DACO will be looking for specific language like soon or at upcoming meetings for hints on when the Fed might actually cut rates. And he thinks the era of unanimous votes at Fed meetings on interest rates is coming to an end, with more dissenting voices at the Fed as it weighs the tricky timing of lowering rates. I'm Nancy marshall Genser for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Deloitte. Advancing the future takes more than a business angle or a technology angle. It takes both. Learn more at Deloitte.com US slash engineering advantage. And by JLL, a commercial real estate partner dedicated to creating lasting change for good in business, communities, and the planet. JLL.com. See a brighter way.
5: Universal Music, the gargantuan record label, says it's now pulling its songs off of the gargantuan social media site TikTok after the two sides failed to reach a new licensing agreement. Universal accused the short video app of trying to build a music business without paying artists and songwriters fairly. Here's the BBC's Tom Bailey. Talks between the two sides have been continuing for some time, with
19: issues including royalty payments and the use of AI-generated music recordings proving sticking points. Now in a dramatic move, Universal has announced it will be removing its entire song catalogue when an existing agreement expires later today. TikTok has said it's saddened and accused Universal of walking away from a platform that serves as a free promotional vehicle for music acts, but it looks like tunes from artists including Taylor Swift, Harry Styles and The Weeknd could soon be unavailable to the platform's over one billion users.
5: This is a clash of titans, you heard him say, the billion plus for TikTok and Universal controls a third of the music in the world. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report. APM. American public media.
0: Mid 30s today and mostly cloudy. The clouds stick around tonight. It'll be in the low 30s. Overcast tomorrow and slightly warmer in the low 40s. Friday, mostly cloudy and low 40s. It's 29 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is coming up next.